Well, welcome. I have 1216, so we should get started here. A little bit about myself. I'm uh, Peter Payne, as I mentioned up front. I'm the director of a nonprofit called the Institute for Credible Christianity. My wife and I go to Europe every year, uh, serving the Christian student movements there. InterVarsity Christian Fellowship is part of an international association of Christian student movements called the International Fellowship of Evangelical Students. So it's by invitation from the IFES movements in Europe that we go over there every year. Actually, this last spring was our 20th trip, going over and serving the, the student movements there. So some of it is uh, involved in campus missions, sometimes debates. I was actually in four debates in Finland this last year with three different atheists and four topics. <laughs> so it was a very, very busy uh, two weeks. But I love that I'll be going back to Germany Usually my wife and I travel together, but I'll be going back to Germany for an all-Europe student conference in Karlsruhe, uh, Germany, which actually they're hoping to have as many as 5,000 students will show up for. So the IFES is sponsoring along as Agape, which what Crusade Crew is called that typically in Europe. Navigators is participating in it. So it's a uh, big conference, and I've been asked to do two seminars, one on the reliability of scripture, And the other one on why does God want to limit our sexuality? Actually, I'm going to suggest they change it. Why does God want to limit our sex? Or why, does, why does God want to limit sex? Just simply, why does God want to limit sex? So both of those are important topics for, for students, particularly the, the latter one. Uh, if uh, a person is sort of grows up in the church but actually gets sexually involved, there's strong motivation to try to justify that. So because they're no longer being faithful, but I know scripture says on that, that actually drives them away from the church. And that's a major concern when people get into that, not only the, the, the struggle, the, the lack of wisdom of, of getting sexually involved with someone else, but also the way in which that uh, can be sort of a, a wedge or between themselves and, uh, and, and the Christian faith. But anyway, I enjoy interacting with skeptics. Part of why I enjoy going to Europe is Europe has lots of skeptics. I mean, there's some countries like Poland that's still very, very religious, uh, like 90% of the people still call themselves Catholic there in Poland. Uh, but in many other countries, it's a minority who will call themselves Christian. And a lot of countries, it's like 3% or 4% actually attend church on any kind of regular basis. So it's, it's, it's fun for me to be able to interact with them and skeptics and atheists and If you're back tomorrow, you'll be getting some of how, how I respond to, to people who are complete uh, skeptics. Let me say before I go further, at the back there's a table, there's a clipboard. In fact, maybe somebody can grab that clipboard and pass it around. If you'd like to have the PowerPoint, go ahead and put your name and email address down there. If you only want the PowerPoint, you can say only PowerPoint. Though I'm doing some writing this summer, and I'll be sending on a, uh, a couple essays that I'm working on. So if you... If you leave your name on there, you'll get that. And we don't send out regular emails uh, very often, except for when we're on trips. So I'll be sending some updates from Europe. And when we travel in Europe uh, in the spring, this last several years has been for two months each year. We'll do regular updates on that. So that's a little bit uh, about myself. <clears throat> uh, Non-Christians typically have a positive view of Jesus. He was a good moral teacher. Uh, Muhammad, yeah, but Jesus, they have a good, good, good view of what, uh, what Jesus w was like. Uh, but you mentioned the word Jesus, the J word. <laughs> not supposed to mention the J word. <clears throat> you get this uneasiness, and uh, many Christians also feel very uncomfortable 
of talking about their faith and speaking of Jesus. So what I want to be doing right now is turn to someone near you, maybe two or three people together, and ask you to discuss amongst yourselves what makes speaking of Jesus hard. Okay, so turn to somebody near you and uh, uh, talk amongst yourselves what, what makes it hard. Okay, you can probably keep going on for quite a while, but let me have your attention again. So what were some of the comments or thoughts as you were talking together about what makes speaking of Jesus hard? What makes it hard? They want to question what? The oh, the deity of Jesus. Oh, yeah. How can you claim that Jesus, he was a human being, how can you say he was God? I mean, that's kind of pretty outrageous. I mean, you're actually you know, deifying a human being. What kind of uh, ridiculous uh, is that? Okay. Yes, yeah, so that comes up. What else makes it hard? Yes. Fear of man, namely fear of what people will think of you or how they will respond. Yeah, we're, we, we don't want to cause offense. We don't want to be pushy. Uh, and we're afraid of what people will say, what they'll think of us. And sometimes that's a legitimate fear. I had a, there was a grad student at, at UC Santa Cruz. My wife and I oversee a grad student fellowship there. And uh, he was in his fourth year in the astronomy, a PhD program in astronomy. And his sister had become a Christian. He was thinking about the faith. And I got to, know, got to know him then. At the beginning of his fifth year, I asked him, as you're thinking about the Christian faith, is there any particular barrier between yourself and becoming a Christian? And he said, actually, one of the big ones is what people think of me. And I guarantee you that his becoming a Christian, about six months later, about four, four months later, he did become a Christian, that there would be colleagues of his in the astronomy PhD program who would think, oh, I thought he was smarter than that. <laughs> so estimation goes down. <laughs> so there's very much a cost in identifying yourself with Jesus in many circles these days. Yeah, even saying a little different, like Jesus follower, or I'm a follower of Jesus, doesn't have quite the same connotation. You're not quite, it's, so it, it, talking about Christian, depending on the context, uh, that can have a lot of negative well, we'll come, we'll come to that. I mean, even uh, I've had people, when I was in university, the dorms were more open in terms of being able to go around and tap on doors and introduce yourself. And I would be with a, a Christian student and we'd say, we're Christians here at Stanford, which is where I went. And uh, curious to see what kind of uh, contact you've had with Christians and what you think about the faith. So we'd just like to know what you think. And if the person says, I don't want to talk about it. You know, it sounds like I... I'll respond by saying, it sounds to me as though you've had some negative experiences. And the person could say, yeah, <laughs> close the door. <laughs> but likely the person then begins to share some of their negative experiences. And oftentimes some of the things they share are things which I say, those are, those are good criticisms. A lot of Christians are guilty of that. And uh, I, I agree with you on that. And uh, they go on for you know, 10 minutes and the person wasn't going to talk about Jesus and now how that, they are. <laughs> well, why? <laughs> Because I said something that triggered them to be able to say what they think, rather than feeling like uh, they were going to get uh, uh, some, something pushed on, on them. And the interesting thing is, they didn't want to talk about it, they realized that I'm not the kind of stereotype of the person that they didn't like. Because I was actually willing to listen and empathy and agree with things they were saying. So actually paying attention to what the other person is saying and, and recognize, saying, that's good, I like that, or acknowledging things they say can go a long way in terms of developing comfort in conversation. But any other thoughts about what makes it hard? Yes? Maybe not having, feeling like you have proper rebuttals or to be able to answer questions that they might throw at 
Yeah, so the hard questions. I mean, you probably know some questions. I don't know how I respond to that question. That, I, I asked myself that question. I don't have a good answer. What if they asked me that question? I'd just be stumped. Actually, if a person asks a hard question and you don't answer, I recommend you say, that's a very good question. I'll think about that and check into it, and I'll get back to you. How's that sound? Yeah, that sounds good. Well, you can, but typically, you know, <laughs> politicians do that all the time. <laughs> Listen to the debates, you know, they have a pointed question today, they never, they never, never, never answer it. But acknowledging that's, that's a good question, it gives you the opportunity actually to raise it again. You know, we, you know, I saw you a couple weeks ago and you asked this question, I've actually thought about it some, and I'd be glad to tell you what I found if you like. Okay, yeah, what'd you find out? So you have the opportunity to talk about it. So actually a hard question you can't answer can lead to a later conversation. And there are good answers to most of the questions that are out there. Anything else that make, what makes it hard? Yes. Yeah, so the question for the re recording here is about uh, family. And in this case, uh, a Catholic background and some acknowledgement of that, but also family members who are skeptics. And you're sort of walking on thin ice. And actually, it's, it's oftentimes harder to share your faith with someone you know really well than someone you don't know at all. Because after all, you live with the consequence of that. You share your faith with someone at work, well, you see the person at work, and you know, the relationship matters. And oftentimes, the first impressions are big. So I don't recommend the first time you meet a person at work to talk about your faith. Because that can give them sort of a stereotype in your mind, oh, you're this kind of person. Whereas if you build a little bit of friendship and a little bit of respect to begin with, and then bring it up, uh, then there's, uh, there's more openness to it. But first impressions are, are, are huge. You, know, you get stereotyped as you're this kind of person, and we don't want that. Now, it shouldn't cause us to be fearful about it, but nonetheless, we need wisdom on timing to when to speak and when to say what we think. Here are some uh, comments that I, I came up with. Uh, not wanting to be pushy, awkwardness in raising the topic, fear of what others may think of us, either that we're narrow-minded or we're less intelligent, fear of questions one cannot answer, or maybe not even convinced that our friends need Jesus. Uh, we don't talk about that very much. In our heads, as Christians and evangelicals, we would say, okay, my friends need Jesus. But when it comes down to it, you know, your friends, do you actually, are you actually convinced that their lives would be better off? That their lives would be better if they came to know Jesus? And if you don't have this conviction that it would be good news for them, then it's easy to put it off to one side. So it's worth, worth thinking about that and sort of, well, why is it good news to me and why would it be good news to the person that I know? There are a few foundational things. One is understanding what the gospel's about. So if I were to ask you to take out a piece of paper and make sort of an outline of points, you think key points in the gospel, would you be able to do that? I mean, you should be able to do that. It's, it's, there's there's, there's trick, tricky parts of it. But nonetheless, we ought to understand the gospel well enough that we can communicate. And most times when you're speaking to someone, it's not appropriate to lay out the whole gospel. But you get those opportunities. The example for myself, there was an international student who had been attending our church for a while. So I got together with him for breakfast, <clears throat> and, I, and I asked him, uh, in attending church, you've heard the word gospel a lot. Do you feel like you understand what that means? He said, uh, sort of. <laughs> So well, if you like, I'd be glad to lay out, as I see it, what sort of the basic elements of the gospel are. Would that be helpful? Yeah, that'd be helpful. So I pulled out the paper napkin and my pen and started writing down. On. So I basically uh, asked him if he would like that. And he, by his saying yes, then there was an openness to it. 
So actually, oftentimes, you, by asking, would you like to hear about this or that, and the person says yes, then you have their attention, you have their permission, and it goes, goes much more smoothly. There are hard questions people raise. And if you want, later on, you can talk to me about these. Uh, why did Jesus have to die on the cross? Couldn't God just forgive us? Most people are basically good. Surely a merciful God wouldn't require perfection. God surely wouldn't send anybody to hell just because they didn't profess certain beliefs, would he? Or if God is all good and all powerful, he wouldn't allow so much evil and suffering. I, I give a, uh, a, quite frequently asked to give a, a, a lecture, a talk on that topic. Another foundation, when a person becomes a Christian, there are three things that need to come together. The Christian faith has to make some sense to them. If they think it's just false, or probably false, as much as they may be attracted to Christians, they're not going to take seriously the Christian faith. So it's not just having a winsome life. They actually have to believe that it's credible. They can still have doubts, and it's fine to become a Christian still having doubts, but you have to have enough to go on that this actually makes sense. It's I'm not sure it's the right answer, but I can see some reason to it. You can act on that. Uh, motivation is crucial. Is the person motivated? Is it attracted by Jesus? Is becoming a Christian something that, oh, I, 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 I'd like to, I like that. Following Jesus sounds uh, attractive to me. I, I, that's something that I go for. So there has to be motivation, but there also has to be an act of the will. Sometimes we give the impression that being a Christian is simply checking off propositions. You know, do you believe these propositions? Quote me on this prayer, and you're, 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 you're saved. Well, the simplest definition of a Christian is a Christian is a follower of Jesus. Jesus says, not everybody says, Lord, Lord, says the right words, and is the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father. So a Christian is a person who's a follower of Jesus, and a person can sit on the fence and think, yes, maybe yes, maybe no. <laughs> but they need to get off the fence sometime and actually, okay, I'm going to commit myself. This is where I'm going. So there has to be an act of the will involved in it. And our conversation really needs to touch on all three of those. So even though I'm an apologist and I'm very much concerned about reasons, motivation is also crucial. So as much as important for me is what motivates the person, what sort of motivational barriers they have, those are very, very important. It's also important to recognize that it's not just up to us. We need the Holy Spirit to be at work. And we need prayer for that. I know that I can give exactly the same argument to two different people, and one person will say, eh, and the next person will say, yeah, I like that. That makes sense. Well, actually, there's not something, there's no logic that says they have to agree with it, but I think the Holy Spirit works through people's minds as well as through their hearts. We oftentimes the Holy Spirit works through our lives, well, it works through the things we say as well. If you read through the Apostle Paul, the Apostle Paul was very much speaking and working through his words and arguments proving from the Old Testament passages that Jesus was the Christ. So God works both through our minds and through our hearts, but it has to be the Holy Spirit at work in a person's life. And we can't control that. Plus, there are times when people are open and there are times when they're not open. And when I'm saying something and they're not open, well, it's just going to like water off the duck's back, all right? But if they're open and I need God's Spirit to lead me, what's a good time to speak? So timing and openness there, but we just, so much depends upon the spirit and we need to pray. So you may feel like, oh, what can I do in evangelism? Well, you start by praying. <laughs> and God, give me some sensitivity, give me some wisdom, give me eyes to see opportunities uh, to engage with. Friendship and trust is not absolutely essential, but it's typically there. 
There aren't very many people who become Christians without having a relationship with a Christian and being attracted to that person or attracted to the Christian community. I do know one person who became a Christian solely through listening to Christian radio. It's the only person I've ever heard of. Typically, people who become Christians know not just one Christian, but at least several Christians. And it's through their interaction with them and their friendship. So friendship and trust is, 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 is crucial. By the way, people following Jesus follow Jesus because of what they saw in Jesus and the trust uh, which was there. Prior relationship is not essential. When I get on an airplane and a person sits down next to me, I'll typically introduce myself or I'll uh, ask, uh, is the destination where the airplane's going to, is that your destination? And the person may say, no, I'm actually flying on to, or they say, yeah, I am. And if they are, then I'll say, well, is this business or family or what's the... Uh, if the person just gives one word, very short answers, I know they really don't want to talk. So I don't go on, just you know, let them get... But if, in fact, they're engaged in conversation, that leads somewhere. There wasn't any friendship to begin with, but nonetheless, get in conversation as I ask things about them. Who knows where it may go? So you can actually have quite significant conversations when there's no, no background to begin with. Speaking with family and friends is harder, I said, because of the cost involved in that. One thing I suggest, if you have some friend maybe you work with, and the person knows you're a Christian, but you've never talked about your faith with this person, if an opportunity comes where you're just together and it's a quiet moment, you can say, you know that I go to church every Sunday, and you presume that I'm a Christian, I am. But I actually kind of apologize. I've never actually told you why or what that means to me or how it is that I came to the faith that I have. If you're interested, I'd be glad to share some of that with you sometime. And the person could say no, but typically people say, oh, okay, yeah, I'd be interested in that. Not now, but sometime. <laughs> so you can raise it again. If the next time they say no, well, you can, you can, if you're feeling like the person is just sort of putting you off, you can say, look, if you don't want to hear it, I, I, I'll respect that. Uh, no, 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 you know, that, that's sometime. So it gives you the opportunity. Again, you're asking the person, would you like to hear the story? And it's a case where you haven't talked about it, so there's an awkwardness, and you're actually apologizing a bit for You know, I, I just, I haven't talked to you about it, but if you'd like to know more about my story, a little bit about my story, I'd be glad to share, you, share that with you sometime. Again, sometime, not right now, gives them the opportunity to say, yeah, at some point uh, down, down the road. Another thing about sharing your faith is the art of conversation. Some people are really good at the art of conversation and getting into significant conversation. Other people are not. You may be a very verbal person, but that doesn't mean you get into very deep conversations. So how do you develop the art of conversation? I want to give a think about, I was thinking about this question, and I was asking, what makes a conversation about politics enjoyable? You know, there's, there's a line, don't talk about religion or politics in polite company, right? Because you don't want to, you don't want to ruffle the water, get the water shaken up. So what makes a conversation about politics enjoyable? And I came up with the following list, and it will apply to our faith. You have an opportunity to say what you think. So if you have an opportunity to say what you think, that's, that's very important. And the other person shows an interest in what you think. If they don't have an interest in what you think, it's not an enjoyable conversation. The other person also has some worthwhile thoughts. So if it's just me going on about what I think, uh, I mean, it'll be okay, but that's not really an enjoyable conversation. But the other person has some worthwhile thoughts. That contributes to it. The conversation is by consent. Neither person is sort of roped into it or pulled into it. It's by consent. And it continues only as long as both want it to. 
One way of avoiding a conversation going on longer than it should is to have some pauses. So if you're talking about your phone, don't keep going, because the person might be thinking, when is this person going to stop? But if you have pauses, or even ask, what do you think about what I've said? But just simply a pause gives the person the opportunity to say, well, I really need to be going. It gives them the opportunity to cut it off and go out something else. So when there's pauses, you won't be going on uh, much longer than you ought to be going on. And when you pause and the person says something still on topic, okay, <laughs> green light, you continue, continue talking. Something is learned. Maybe the other person shared some facts which were helpful. So to actually learn something about it is a part of makes for a, a good conversation about politics. And out of this whole thing, a mutual respect and friendship grows. Now, you might think two people have opposing political views. They're talking about it. That's going to drive them apart. Well, it can. But if all these things are true of the conversation, it will likely actually bring them together, where they both enjoy the conversation, even though they disagree. Nonetheless, they appreciated the interaction and the, 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 just the, the grace with which the conversation took place. So if you think about these things in relation to sharing your faith, am I doing these things? Are these things true of what I'm saying? If they're not, then try to just think about it and try to incorporate some of these things into your conversation about the gospel. Part of this is it needs to be a dialogue and not a monologue. Now, sometimes I'll get into a bit of monologue, but it's the best if i doing so, I say I can, so a person raises some objection. And I'll say, well, I can, I can respond to that, but to give the kind of response I'd like to give to it will actually probably take about 15 minutes. If you have time, the person might say, yeah, I've got time, or no, sometime in the future. But if you say that and the person says, yeah, then they're actually giving you permission to go on and sort of elaborate your view, and they're actually going to have patience with you. Where if you don't say that, or they haven't sort of recognized, OK, this is going to take longer, they'll probably cut you after you're off your first sentence or two and keep raising their objections and not give you a chance to actually give the response you'd like to give. There are levels of conversation. Uh, whenever you start a conversation, you have to get something start the conversation. So I call that small talk, breaking the ice. When we were in Finland this last year, it was interesting, I was talking to one of the Finnish people, and he said, Finns do not engage in small talk. Finns don't engage in small talk. Actually, it happens that the Finnish people have been dominated by other people for most of their history, whether it's through the Danes or the Swedes or the Russians. And as a sort of a, a character of the culture, they tend to be subdued and quiet. They're not brash and arrogant by culture. I mean, individual Finns may, but nonetheless, as a culture, they tend to be that way. And I was told that, well, when Finns have something to say, they say it. And when they don't, they're quiet. So they have a fair amount of tolerance for a sort of Quiet in relationships, where you feel like they need to talk all the time. So we don't engage in small talk. So I gave this talk in Finland. Actually, I know that I've been told that Finns don't engage in small talk. So forget about whatever you call it. How do you get the conversation started? How do you break the ice? I mean, that's really the crucial question. So in, in the US, you know, it's a really hot day. Oh, it's a hot day today, you know? And that gets the conversation going. Just, uh, or maybe the Warriors are in the you know, playoffs, and uh, you know, what, what do you think about the Warriors? So that, that may or may not go. And then yeah, below that is what I call genuine interest. And most people don't think about this, but it, actually you ought to be listening for something in the other person that's a genuine interest for them. 
If you touch on a genuine interest, they will go on about it. They, they love talking about it. And even if you don't have a great interest in yourself, it behooves you to ask them to say more of what they think. So if the person is a great Warriors fan, you might ask, well, what do you think about this last season? Or who on the team do you like most? Or have you been a Warriors fan for a long time? Those kinds of questions get them going, and because you're showing an interest in what they're interested in, that builds relationship. And when there's a relationship in the conversation building, that opens up them to actually hear what you have to say. So listen for things they're genuinely interested in, and then ask them about it, and be patient, and let them talk about what they're genuinely interested in, and maybe you'll, your interest will grow. I mean, you may not be a basketball fan at all, but you actually may gain some interest in, in basketball and learn a little bit more about uh, what, what motivates them. Below that are values and feelings. Sort of what do you get out of it? What, what do you find really enjoyable about it? And below values and feelings are deeper values, aspirations, uh, things you, that really matter to you. What are things you really want to accomplish? What, what, are, what are major goals for you in your life? What, what, what do you want to, kind of person you want to be? And that, of course, raises the foundational worldview kind of questions that lie behind those. And as you go through those, it's much easier to get into deeper conversation when they're already, already in a deeper uh, level. There's a woman, Becky Manley Pepper, some of you may know. She wrote a book called Out of the Salt Shaker. She's been living in Europe for a while now, <clears throat> but uh, she's actually going to be one of the speakers, plenary speakers, at the conference uh, I'm going to. She's a very effective evangelist. Part of what makes her an effective evangelist is she just has a fascination with people. She meets someone, oh, really? Tell me about that. And she's not feigned fascination. She just finds people fascinating. And of course, if somebody is fascinating about, fascinated about you and what you're thinking about and what you're doing, well, wow, okay, thanks. <laughs> so out of that relationship comes the opportunity for sharing her faith. Well, one of the things she does in her book, uh, Out of the Salt Shaker, is she uses the, th the three terms, investigate, stimulate and relate. Now, relate is where you actually get to talking about your faith and what you believe. Investigate is learning about the other person. Uh, when I was showing my wife this slide, she said, investigate sounds too much like interrogate. <laughs> well, no, you're not interrogating the person. You just want to find out about the person. And stimulate is saying things briefly and then holding your tongue, but you're saying things which prompt a response or easily lead to a response, and when there is that response, then that opens up for much more fruitful dialogue. Uh, so there's all kinds of background. You can ask about origins, siblings, parents, education, interests, every, those, those two for everybody. Uh, it's worthwhile finding out whether they're working, whether they're students, single, married, uh, and you can ask just basic questions, just simple questions which are true for anybody, and that can lead to uh, other conversations. It's important to ask questions that go a bit deeper. When I meet a student, I'll almost always ask, what are you majoring in? Uh, and what year are you? I mean, those are kind of superficial. I mean, that's the kind of questions you ask. But it's great to ask a question like, well, what got you interested in physics? Have you had an interest in that for a long time, or in literature, or whatever it might be? Or if they're in literature, what kind of literature are you most interested in? Or if they're in the PhD program, I can ask, uh, what do you think about the PhD program? Do you like it? Or if you were to do it again, would you follow the same course? I mean, those are questions which are deeper questions, but they're easy to ask. But they get at more significant things than simply what's your major and 
that. So you can ask questions like, hey, here's some questions for a working person. And you see how these questions get deeper than simply uh, where do you work and who are you working for? But you start off with what kind of work do you do? What company? Those are in the intro. So what got you interested in this line of work? And are you happy working for this company? Uh, what do you enjoy most about the work? Do you find parts of it difficult? Now it's getting a little more, but uh, you can ask that kind of question. Uh, do you work closely with others, and how is that? Because I know that your satisfaction in a job is partially about doing work you like doing, but a large part of it is working with people that you like. So if you have people around you you enjoy working with, you have a boss that's easy to work with, that, that makes a huge difference. So asking the question, do you work close with other people who you work with, and how does that go? Uh, do you think you'll continue doing this long term, or is this hopefully a stepping stone to something else? If you were to do things over again, would you do this? Of course, then there's always the question, when you're not working, what do you enjoy doing? So that gets them into other interests. And so the audience asking questions a little deeper than simply the superficial, but they're natural, easy questions. So if you think, okay, how can I engage in conversation more effectively? How can I ask questions that go a little bit deeper than simply where are you working? Let's skip over this, the students to question. You can also ask about religious background. So for instance, if I ask a person, where are you from? Uh, and they'll give me where it's from. And I'll say, if you don't mind asking, uh, is, was, was your family religious or religious background? And the person could say yes or no. Uh, if the person says yes, well, you can say, well, what, what, what was their faith? And they can tell you a little about that. And I can ask a question, uh, uh, do you have any religious faith yourself? Again, these are no, but at the same time, it's, it comes in a conversation of asking about background, and so you can ask about religious background, and you're not being pushy if you don't push the, the conversation beyond what the, how the person responds. Uh, if the person said they used to be a Christian uh, and they've changed their beliefs since then, I like asking a question, something like, I'm curious, and I don't mean to be pushy, so don't, no, you don't, don't need to respond if you don't want to, but I'm curious what led to your change in view. So they used to be a Christian, now they're not. Uh, what, what led to that? And it's very interesting to find out what people say. Sometimes it's personal experiences, it might be negative experience with Christians. It might be things about Christian doctrine they don't like. Uh, it may be people, Christians whom they don't like. It may be that there's books they've read, maybe a book by a skeptic or somebody who's an atheist, or maybe things on the internet. Internet is huge these days. I find that questions which are sort of uh, you know, specialized questions in the past, uh, you assume people don't know anything about that. But it's not all surprising to have somebody mention Bart Ehrman. Well, how do they know Bart Ehrman, the skeptic about the, the scriptures, and he teaches at the University of Virginia? Well, he's quite popular on the internet. He's been on host television shows, and, and you can watch YouTube videos of him. And people surf the internet, and they come across things like that. So I'm trying to find out, okay, what kind of influences, what, what, what led to the, the place you're in? If a person uh, says he used to be a Christian, I like asking the question, I don't know if he, I know you don't believe it anymore, but do you wish the Christian faith were true? Sometimes the person will say no, and I'll ask, well, why do you say that? And then they'll give some response. If they say yes, 
that tells me that they weren't sort of driven away from the faith because they didn't like things or there's motivation to reject the Christian faith, but rather they simply came to believe, I can't believe anymore. Now, maybe through professors or whatever, they just came up with arguments, objections. That sounds to me as though my faith is, is, is not true. And they've, they've left it, but they really do wish it were true. Now, for myself, it wouldn't be true for yourself, but I, I can, if, I, if, if it's a person that I can keep in touch with, I'll say, well, I can't guarantee you that I'll be able to persuade you that the Christian faith is true. But I think I probably could persuade you that there's a much better case to be made for it than you currently think. Well, that, that's, that, that's me. But nonetheless, uh, asking that question is a great question to ask. If the person says no, it means arguments aren't what they need nearly as much as motivational questions. You need to get, to get at those kinds of issues. If the person says they're Hindu or some other faith, I can ask a question like, I'm curious, if someone were to say to you, you're a Hindu just because you grew up in that faith, how would you respond? Now, I'm just, you know, I'm curious of what they have to say about it. And it's a sort of probing question a person could ask of me, or say, well, you just believe it because you're your background. So I'd ask them, how would you respond? And the person might say, well, yeah, I'm, I'm basically Hindu because that's the, the background I grew up in. It's interesting, this last year we were in uh, Kosice, Slovakia, and we were invited to a dinner with uh, some students, uh, and the person who was the Christian staff worker invited a group of about eight students from India, one of whom said he was a Christian, and she asked him, well, what does that mean to you? He said, well, it means I need to be a kind person and nice and caring and honest. Not a whole lot. <laughs> you ask, what does the faith mean to you? You expect something more than that kind of response. Others have said, well, they're Hindu. And so I asked one of them, well, what, what do you, how do you respond when somebody who's Hindu, like yourself, becomes an atheist? Oh, it doesn't happen very often. <laughs> well, okay. So I said, well, I mean, suppose, you know, there's lots of gods within Hinduism, they follow different gods. Well, suppose two people are getting married, and they, from the family backgrounds, they worship different gods. What happens when they get married and they come with different gods? And their response was, well, the wife embraces the husband's God. Oh, so I was actually learning some things about Hindu culture and how they view it. That wasn't the kind of response, but I was simply asking some questions and learning things about them. So asking questions about what they believe and what it means can get great conversation going without your having talked about the faith, but likely, I mean, they'll oftentimes say a question back to you. Well, how about yourself? Uh, why are you a Christian? Was it Christian? Was it, was it simply your background? Another question is, do you think it's important for others to come to, to embrace the beliefs that you hold? And the person might say, no, this is my culture. I don't expect people from other cultures to believe what I believe, but this is what I believe. Although a person, say, is American, has become Buddhist, and this is simply from a Buddhist culture, likely the person say, well, everybody would benefit from Buddhism. Buddhism is wonderful. It teaches you how to be able to have peace in a world where there's lots of things don't go right. And actually, Buddhism does a pretty good job of delivering peace. Um, that, that's what they focus upon. And there's a lot more to faith than simply having peace. But that's a really significant question you can ask. Stimulate is comments that invite a response. So for instance, here are some examples. A person says that they, uh, maybe they were in high school and they would ask questions about the faith and they were always told, you simply need to have faith. Don't ask questions, just believe. Well, they say, well, in high school, they probably wouldn't use the expression of being sort of an intellectual straitjacket. 
And a person who's gone mad, they're all wrapped up. Well, in high school, they just couldn't ask any questions. You were in an intellectual straitjacket. They went to university, and they could ask questions for the first time. And wow, this tremendous sense of liberation and freedom. Forget, forget the, the faith. And I'll say, it sounds like your experience is quite different from mine. They'll likely say, well, what do you mean? Well, when I was growing up, it wasn't the case that I couldn't ask questions. So, for, for example, my dad was a professor of Old Testament. I remember one time around the dinner table, uh, my mom was sitting at one of the table, and my dad was the other on the table, and my oldest brother was across the table. And my oldest brother was raising questions about the faith. Is it true? And I looked at my mom, she didn't quite have her, she wasn't actually literally biting her fingernails, but I could tell mm, she was, <laughs> there was worry on her face. My dad, however, said to my brother, you know, as much as your mother and I want for you to come to the faith that we have, this is something you have to come to yourself. So there was never this pressure that you have to believe this or don't ask questions. When I decided to major in philosophy, I never got from my parents, don't study philosophy, you know, don't, that's a dangerous thing to do. <laughs> so there's always the freedom to ask questions. So for the person who really recognized, not all Christians have the same experience that they've had. So maybe it's not the Christian faith as much as their own particular experience which is involved. Uh, so oftentimes you talk about what you did over the last weekend. So somebody you see at work, you know, what did you do this last weekend? Well, you might say, well, you probably know, I, I go to church most Sundays, and I was at church this last Sunday. And the sermon gave, a pastor gave a sermon, and he said some things that I found quite helpful. You shut your mouth and wait. The person might say nothing and just go on talking about something else. Okay, they're not listening. But the person who's really listening, they may say, well, what do you mean? And you actually have an invitation to talk about the sermon. Now, how many times do you get an invitation to talk about a sermon with a non-Christian friend? They don't want to hear about the sermon. But because you said you found some things in the sermon quite helpful, close your mouth. Say, well, what was that? What was that? So that you can, you can share about it. A uh, person, uh, the topic comes up, and I'll say, I recently read a, an essay or a book on that topic. Now, some people just ignore that, but typically, what book was that? <laughs> so an invitation to talk about what the book was and begin to say something about it. Or some issue might be raised, and I'll say, I've been thinking a fair, about, fair, fair amount about that question lately. And then I wait. Well, what have you been thinking? What, you, what are your thoughts? They're asking for my thoughts because I've put it in a way where I'm stimulating response. And once I, when there's the response there, there's much more openness to hear what I have to say. So rather than simply something comes up and I'm going to dump by what I think, <laughs> all right, that may, may, may be received well or not. But when you say something that stimulates a response and they give you an invitation to share what you're thinking, it's much more effective. Uh, sometimes I'll say, Jesus told a parable that relates to that. Uh, what parable was that? <laughs> I was in uh, Prague, and I was uh, doing a question and answer with an international student uh, group at the International Baptist Church there, and the topic of fairness came up, and how Christianity, how Jesus views fairness. And I said, uh, Jesus told a parable that relates to that topic. Can you guess what parable? Okay, the workers. Uh, the parable is a man is hiring workers for the day, farmer, and he, and he hires people at the beginning of the day, and they're day laborers, and there's a set amount that they expect to be paid, and that's what they're paid at the end of the day. And then some other workers come along halfway through the day, and they need work, so he hires them. 
And then with just a couple hours left in the day, there's some more workers show up, and he hires them. And at the end of the day, he pays them all the same. Well, the student who I've been talking to said, well, that's not fair. <laughs> okay, From sort of a Western standpoint, you get paid for your work, and if you work for two hours, you shouldn't get a whole day's wage. Okay, that's not fair. But I said, well, let's think about that. The person who worked all day got the wage they expected. It was a fair wage. Is there something unfair about being generous? And remember, the person that worked half the day or just a couple hours, probably they have the same needs as the person who worked all day. And a family, mouths to feed, all that kind of thing. So they need the money as much as the others did. Is it really unfair what Jesus did? Think about sort of a Christian view of fairness. What is fairness? And oftentimes we take sort of our cultural view of fairness, and that's what fairness is. But actually thinking about fairness from Jesus' perspective is helpful. And the person, oh, Jesus is interesting. In fact, one of the best things you can do in outreach, if the person is open to it, is to get together and read a chapter from the Gospels and talk about it. You can do it one-on-one, or you can do it uh, in a group. And what's great about that is the person is both being drawn closer to you, in terms of the friendship that's taking place there, but they're also likely being drawn towards Jesus. Now, not everybody is drawn towards Jesus, but Jesus is, is, I think, fascinating. His responses are never canned responses. He responds to every person individually, depending on where they're coming from. And it's the variety of things that Jesus says and the things he, he does are quite fascinating. Why is he doing this? What lies, what lies behind it? So related sharing of philosophy about the Christian faith, and it could come up at uh, all kinds of uh, issues or topics which may be raised. And asking permission to share your faith uh, is, is important. So I have uh, here some things. I think I've talked about most of these before. Uh, yeah, uh, yeah. So that's that's the although those things I've already mentioned. So speak of Jesus. It's very important to share your story. So sharing your testimony, uh, and that's that has a lot of weight. So people want to know what actually was your experience, what happened with you, and if they can relate to that, that could be significant. But they need to be drawn not only to you and some values that you have, but be drawn towards Jesus. So if you can direct their thoughts towards Jesus or connect what you're saying with things that Jesus said or get them looking at Jesus, uh, that's, that, that's a great thing to do. In fact, if you're sharing about, uh, say, something, uh, a parable from Jesus, you might say, you might be interested sometimes in looking at some more things that uh, Jesus says. I, th- I find that really fascinating. You think you'd be interested in that? Oh, I guess so, maybe so. Because the context raised it. And that context said, well, sometimes I get together with people. In fact, I'm getting together with, if you already have something going, you're welcome to join us if you like. I tell you what, if I start some discussion about the, the, the Gospels, I'll, I'll let you know. Oh, okay. You prime the prompt so there's much higher likelihood that they will say yes when you ask because the topic has already been, been raised. Again, mo- uh, not a monologue, but a conversation. Pauses are important. And what are your thoughts? When I, was, when I was laying out the gospel for the international student that I mentioned at the beginning, I would uh, go through a point, I'd pause, and I would ask, does that make sense to you? And he might say, yeah, I guess that makes sense. Then I'd go on to the next point. Or I might say, no, not really. Well, what's, what's confusing to you? And I'll go and I'll, we'll, we'll talk about it. So there are aspects of the gospel that are not all that easy to explain. There's the this line, Jesus died for our sins. Well, what does Jesus died for our sins mean? <laughs> for most non-Christians, that's rather puzzling. How can you know, Jesus die 2,000 years ago have anything to do with us? I mean, how can there be any justice of my doing something wrong and then somebody else dying because of it? No, what, what, what's, what's the point of that? 
There was one time I saw a bumper sticker <clears throat> that said Custer, as in Custer's last stand. Uh, Custer died for our sins. Actually, that's true. <laughs> that's not what we mean. Jesus died for our sins. But yeah, Custer died for our sins because of our sins against the Native American people, plus his own brashness. He just was uh, so brash and thought he could handle anything. He had no awareness of what he was up against when uh, he was this huge uh, uh, outnumbered uh, Indians and they were, they were wiped out. But he died for our sins. That's, that's a true statement. So we need to be able to unpack those, those kinds of things. Also, encourage your response. I'll just say a few things here. I have a number of slides, but I'll just say a few things. One is we shouldn't think of sharing the gospel as simply encouraging the response of becoming a Christian. Likely, there are other hurdles or other thresholds that you cross before that point. So you need to ask, where are they, and try to encourage them along that, uh, along that line. So if they really don't know very much about Jesus, challenge them, encourage them, well, you need to learn more. Uh, so it's some, some way, either get them to come to something where they can learn more or say, uh, you know, we, we could, if you like, we could get together and look at some passage from Jesus and, and, and talk about it. But encourage some kind of response. Also, if a person sees some truth in what Jesus says, it's important for us to encourage them to act on that. Jesus gave us a principle that if you have truth and you don't act on it, you lose what you have. It's not just things stay the same. When you act on truth, you actually gain more. You become open to more truth. So you may have a person who's not ready to become a Christian, but recognize some things about what Jesus is saying and it makes sense to them. Encourage them to act on that. Say, so, well, let's make us a project for this next week. Try to work on that, and I'll ask you next week, how are you doing? It's kind of like a Bible study, and how, how are you doing? Well, you do this non-Christian. They see something true in Jesus, and you can say, well, let's, let's, let's try to work on that. So encourage them to act on what they know, and that opens them up to more along the way. Also, encouraging a response, uh, you get to know a person, you've been talking about the faith, well, how do you actually sort of move it towards, you know, are you open to becoming a Christian? So oftentimes we have no clue. A person's been hearing the gospel for a while. Are they moving towards the faith? Are they becoming more open? Are they at a point where they might become a Christian? And we never ask questions to find out. So it's important to ask questions and find out where they're at. There was a, a student that uh, I got to know at the University of Michigan. He was in the music program, the, the master's program in music. We'd actually gotten together because a woman who'd gone to undergrad university with him, who was at Northwestern, and he was at Michigan where we were, uh, gave me a phone call and said, I have this friend who prayed one time to become a Christian, but uh, I don't think he is. Uh, could, you, could you get together with him? So I said, sure. So I gave him a phone call explained who I was and why I was calling, and I offered to say, if you like, I'd be glad to treat you to breakfast. Now, at that point, he could say, thank you, but no thank you. <laughs> or, in this case, he said, sure. So we got together, and after sort of some uh, small talk around the beginning of, of breakfast, I said, uh, you're probably expecting me to ask this question, so I'll ask at this point, where do you see yourself in relationship to the Christian faith? And his response was, well, I, 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 see, I neither believe nor disbelieve. I'm ag agnostic. He grew up Catholic, but really uh, was, was agnostic. That was the start of an ongoing friendship. I think I was the first Christian that he met who actually thought like him. I'm a skeptic by temperament. And so we actually related quite well to each other, and a good friendship developed from that. And we got together pretty regularly. Uh, and then about six months later, I hadn't talked about where he was in relation to the faith for quite a while. So I asked the question, do you see yourself as moving towards the faith? And he said, no, not really. 
And when I asked, why do you say that? He said, well, growing up Catholic, I was told by my priest that faith is something you either have or you don't have, and I simply don't seem to have it. So what I thought was going on there is he had doubts, and he didn't see any way of dealing with those doubts, and you can't simply pretend those doubts aren't there. So he wasn't seeing that he was going to be making some progress. So I said, well, I, I think I know where you're coming from. Uh, we've been uh, done with our, our normal time. This was the end of February, and it was actually a warm, warm spell. So I said, well, if you have time, uh, there's a parable I'd like to tell you that I think may relate to your comment. So we paid for it, went for a walk. And the parable was basically a parable that says, to some extent, in certain situations, you can choose to believe beyond simply what your doubts are. You can choose to believe even when you're not sure that, that you're right. He, 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 from my amazement, he said, well, maybe I should. <laughs> wow, okay. So I gave him a, a couple, I said, I'll, I'll give you, I'll bring by your apartment uh, a couple things I'd like to have you look at. Well, one of them was a First Mornings with God in a Linden Varsity Press booklet with some Bible study uh, sort of devotional kinds of things. The other one's called The Brink of Decision that talked about the questions and, and how you become a Christian. So I left those at his uh, apartment, and uh, the, we got there. The next week was spring break, so I got together with him after that. And it turns out that I left to the wrong door. But fortunately, he was the apartment beloved, and I leaned against the door with his name on the envelope. And he saw the envelope, and he saw his name on it. So he actually did get it. So, providence. <laughs> so then I asked him, well, what'd you think? And his response was, nice try. That's not what I want to hear. <laughs> nice try. I want to say, yes, I've decided to follow Jesus. No, nice try. So the things continued to go on for a while. Uh, at the, uh, just towards the end of the year, he was just about to graduate and go off to Maryland where he was going to become a high school band director. And I was going to tell him, look, if there aren't some major issues, <laughs> I think you know enough to take the step of following Jesus. Well, I didn't get around to sort of challenging him on that. He said that he'd been going to Mass the last uh, couple Sundays, and it was either that past Sunday or the Sunday before. He said, the priest was reading from the Gospels, and it struck me that God was speaking to me. So I've decided to follow him. Now, what was happening there? It wasn't that he had some dramatic experience that can't possibly explain, be explained any other way than God's there. I think what was going on was for him, it was sort of this intellectual game. Well, there's these, these reasons that Peter gives, and yes, there's a good reason there, but there's good reasons on the other side. And what he needed was a sense that God was actually reaching out to him. When people ask me, well, if I pray well, for God to show himself to me, will he do so? Well, I said, well, what, what are you asking for? What are you expecting? And if they're expecting a miracle, something that couldn't possibly happen through any natural means, I'll say, God could do that, but I doubt that he would. And if that's what you need, you're probably not very close to becoming a Christian anyway. <laughs> and maybe something really dramatic wouldn't do it for you. <laughs> but what I think you can do is you can pray, God, help reveal yourself to me in some way. And that it's not just things going on in my head, but you're reaching out to me. I think God honors that kind of prayer. Okay, I'll, I'll stop at this point, but let me ask uh, questions that you might have. We'll get into some more specific responses to skeptics and some of that uh, tomorrow. Yes. How do you deal with the bad news? You know, at some point, it's someone's to say, well, that's not for you, but not for me. How do you say, well, you know, we think you need to Well, there's two aspects of the bad news. One is there's bad news about ourselves. <clears throat> we like to think that we're better than we are. The problem is with them, not with me. <laughs> so the degree of our own self-centeredness is more than we typically want to acknowledge. 
Uh, I'm a nice person. I get along socially well with people. But nonetheless, I am doing what I want to do and pursuing my goals. Uh, and we're really quite self-centered and oftentimes quite uncaring. So there needs to be the bad news about ourselves. Because the gospel isn't just simply here some good, good goodness what God's offering us. We need to recognize that we, in fact, have been in rebellion against God, and we're not the kind of people that we need to be. So there, needs, there is a need for repentance in it. Uh, but then the, 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 uh, uh, the bad news about hell. Uh, I, was at a, I was in a debate in Helsinki three years ago, uh, and the person I debated two, two days later, we got together uh, over coffee. And I asked him, do you wish the Christian faith were true? He was a PhD student in, in philosophy. And he said, well, it depends on what brand of Christianity you're talking about. If it's the liberal Finnish Lutheran brand, uh, yeah, that'd be okay. But if the brand of Christianity that believes in hell, don't want anything to do with it, <laughs> right? So from his standpoint, if you believe in hell, then your faith is a non-starter for me. Any God that would send anybody to hell, uh, that's, that, that's not the kind of God I want to follow. So I'm talking about that kind of bad news, right? You know, your eternal destiny. Uh, so I actually had a conversation for about, uh, last about 20 minutes about the doctrine of hell. And I think it was actually quite helpful for him. I don't have time to sort of give the response about that, but uh, maybe at the beginning of next time I could, I could say something about that. Uh, but God doesn't, I'm curious, God doesn't simply send people to hell because he wants to. He doesn't want to. God really desires that everyone would uh, repent and be restored in relationship to himself. But to be in a relationship with a holy God, short answer here, is that we have to have sin taken care of in our own lives. That we have to somehow have sin dealt with and become holy in ourselves. And it's not a matter of our achieving perfection or achieving holiness in ourselves. But we need to be identified with Christ who took upon himself the death which we deserved. And it's through identification with Christ. See, Paul refers to as Christ, our holiness. He is our holiness. Our holiness is not in ourselves. But to be in the presence of a holy God and not be incinerated. I mean, God is a consuming fire. The point there is that God does not tolerate evil. And if there's evil in the core of who I am and I'm coming before God, that's not good news. Just God in his very character will not sort of, oh, well, I can, I can make do with your own self-centeredness. No, God is a holy God, and we have to have the sin within us dealt with. And it's not simply God choosing. Well, you're not perfect, so therefore you didn't quite make it. <clears throat> you're out. So sometimes the impression is, well, you have to be perfect. Well, we have to be holy, but it's not a matter of achieving per perfection in, in, in ourselves. Okay, well, maybe one more question, then we'll go to... Let me, before, before I uh, ask one more question, back in the back, there's a sign-up list. You can get the PowerPoint. If you only want the PowerPoint, say only PowerPoint. Uh, if you sign up, I won't inundate you with things. When I'm traveling to Europe, I give uh, prayer updates about the things that are taking place there. And I am working on a couple of writing projects, some essays. So I'd be glad to send on to you what, what I'm writing. But uh, there's also a paper there that talks about our last trip to Europe uh, and a business card. But anyway, I want to mention that before people walk on out. But maybe one more question, then we'll go to lunch. Yes? Uh, two, two responses. One, there's an author, Paul Copan, C-O-P-A-N, who's written a number of books, most of them by Baker. And the set of books by Baker are all the format of some objections to the Christian faith and then short responses to it. Uh, you could take sort of one response out of one of those books 
and give that to person. Actually, I recommend instead of giving a book to a person, you give an article. If you give a book to a person, it'll probably go on a shelf and won't be read. But if you give an article to the person and say, when I read this, I was thinking of you, I think you would like it. I'd like to know what you think about it. Likely, if you see the person a couple weeks later and you ask, did you read the article, they'll say no. I mean, that's sort of, I'm assuming that'll probably be the case. But then you can say, I really would like to know what you think about it. So if you have time, uh, I mean, if you, don't, if you don't want to read it, you don't have, oh, I'll, I'll read it. Okay. So then if, when, if the person reads it and likes it, then they're much more apt to read something by the same author. I've known people who read something by C.S. Lewis and liked C.S. Lewis and started reading more stuff by C.S. Lewis. And actually, this was before they actually got to know Christians. But they got to know something by C.S. Lewis and was attracted to what C.S. Lewis had to say. So it's looking for an essay or an article that you think would fit with where that person's coming from and that person would like. And if, in fact, they like it, you may not have the answers yourself, but you're able to direct them to other things. So that's a suggestion on that. Let me pray for us and we'll head off to lunch, okay? Lord, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the gospel. And I thank you that it really is good news for everyone around us. Lord, I pray that you would give us a love for others around us rather than just thinking about ourselves. For me, that's oftentimes a barrier that I don't love people and care for people the way I ought to. But Lord, I thank you for the opportunities you give us, and I pray that you would help each one of us to be able to see those opportunities. And Lord, give us wisdom to be able to say things that would be helpful to help direct, direct people towards you, because it's your spirit that needs to do it. But Lord, thank you that your spirit is at work and that you can work through the things that we say. Lord, thank you for the privilege we have of serving you. Amen.